Hey, this is Ed. Real quick before we get started, I want to thank three, actually four new podcast supporters, Hillary Bullock, Kate Havstad, and Sarah and Joe King. Really, really appreciate the support, guys. This is awesome. It's surpassing all of my expectations. So thank you very, very much. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Hampton Sides. Anyone who's listened to this podcast surely knows of best-selling author and narrative historian Hampton Sides. I reference his books often and was lucky enough to interview him in August at the Aspen Institute, which I released as a podcast episode. In that conversation, we discussed the history of the 19th century American West, and many of you kindly reached out to let me know how much you enjoyed learning from Hampton. So I was thrilled, and I think you will be too, when Hampton generously stopped through Colorado Springs last week in the midst of a busy tour for his amazing new book on desperate ground, the Marines at the Reservoir, the Korean War's greatest battle. As you'd expect, we had a fun conversation that expanded upon our first interview. We dig into his childhood in Memphis, Tennessee, and discuss his lifelong desire to be a writer. We talk about his early years in journalism and how his experiences, both writing and editing, have contributed to his success as an author. We also chat about his years at Outside Magazine and some of the realities of being a freelance journalist and author. Additionally, he shares some of the ins and outs of his writing process, including the struggle of cranking out a first draft, a process he describes as spending time in the, quote, pain cave. We also discuss the Grand Canyon, Wallace Stegner's writing, and much more. Finally, we spend some time talking about On Desperate Ground, which I can't recommend enough. I knew next to nothing about the Korean War, but as usual, Hampton's writing was simultaneously educational and entertaining, allowing me to learn a lot while thoroughly enjoying the process. You don't have to be a war history buff to enjoy this book. His exploration of characters' personalities, motivations, and egos makes for an engaging story that will appeal to anyone who's fascinated by interesting people. And being a weird guy who loves climbing big, absurdly cold mountains— I especially enjoyed our discussion of North Korea's brutal winters and how the sub-zero temperatures were one of the deadliest forces in this battle. Thanks again to Hampton for making the time to meet during such a busy book tour. Please be sure to check out the episode notes for links to all the authors, books, and everything else that we discuss. We cover a lot. This was a great conversation, and I know you'll enjoy it. When you meet somebody for the first time, they come up to you and they say, Hey, Hampton, I'm Ed. What do you do? How do you answer that question? That's a good question because I work in a profession that is uh, never known quite what to call itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Narrative history, I suppose, is the term that is most popular, most commonly used. Uh, But, you know, it's kind of a redheaded stepchild of the genre. It's not academic. You know, academics don't particularly like narrative history. It's like considered history light Mm -hmm. or it's just just too much entertainment or whatever. Um, And uh, 
I've, you know, I've always had this kind of pet peeve about the fact that, you know, what we, what we do is also called narrative nonfiction. Why, you know, like, why do you have to have a negative in front of your profession? Mm-hmm. Um, isn't that kind of presupposing that lying and making stuff up is the, <laughs> you know, is, is really the default position, the, yeah. the, the, the normal position of, of, of the, of humankind. And, uh, we have to, we have to tell people, hey, we're not lying by putting a non in front of it. Um, it just seems kind of odd. But uh, so what do I do? You know, I, I'm a storyteller. I'm a storyteller. And I think that that's what narrative history really strives to do is to make history come alive on the page by telling stories, uh, by, by putting the story back in history. Uh, and I think in the old days, I mean, the really old days, like uh, Neanderthal times, <laughs> You know, that's that's what the first storytellers were. You know, they were trying to tell this great story about the, the woolly mammoth that they saw and killed or, or maybe a whole herd of woolly mammoths. And uh, there was one guy, you know, like his, his name was Og or whatever his name was, who was just a little bit better than uh, everyone else because he just uh, described the, 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 the valley where the hunt took place and you know the, yeah. what the spear looked like and what the weather was like and he set the stage better and uh engrossed the uh, other neanderthals around the uh campfire well that's essentially what we're doing now uh i think i think we live in a kind of golden age of uh narrative nonfiction, narrative history because there are a lot of great storytellers many of whom come out of a journalism background who are telling our best history now, uh, whether it's David Gran or Candace Millard or Laura Hillenbrand uh, or Nathaniel Philbrick, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. David McCullough, of course, is sort of the dean of this kind of writing. Um, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. Oh, there's so much great stuff being written by "Quote unquote non historians. Yeah. <laughs> they are not academics. Most of those people, um, although some may have a foot in the academic world, um, uh, they are they are uh, they're generalists, sure. um, and and they research deeply and they do a ton of archival work, just like academic historians mm-hmm. do. But um, their main goal is to tell a story that has maybe some of the attributes we more commonly associate with with fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, like." Um, Character character development and um, plot twists and uh, reconstructed dialogue when whenever you can, when, whenever you can do do that legitimately, and uh, other things like that. So that's what I do. I'm a storyteller. Yeah, and I think you're. I mean, you're you're obviously one of the best. And it's. I think we were talking about this last time we met, and that sometimes people will come up to you and they'll say. I loved your novel because mm-hmm. it's so you know it's written like a novel, but every single sentence in there is hard won mm-hmm. through just uh, I can't even imagine how much research. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'd like to hear kind of how you got to where you are because um, you didn't wake up one day being able to do this stuff. I mean, there was obviously a long journey. So I guess we we'll just start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. uh, capital of the Mississippi Delta, and uh, certainly, when you think about it, an area that is rich with writers, great writers, if you take the general region, you know, Faulkner being, you know, the, the greatest of them all. And I grew up certainly at an early age thinking I wanted to be a writer of some sort. Mm-hmm. I actually thought I would be a journalist uh, and grew up. In the Woodward Bernstein era, uh, briefly thought maybe that's what I was going to be. He's like a 
investigative reporter or something like that. My mom actually bought me a London Fog, you know, raincoat, <laughs> uh, trench coat. And um, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. But where did that come uh, from? I mean, were, were I your parents into that? I really don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I think it's just almost innate. Um, my father was a lawyer, but he loved great writing and very much encouraged me on this path. I had some great history teachers. I had some some great English teachers. But I think the desire to write is is almost more of like a, an affliction mm-hmm. that you just are either born with or – or you're not. I've heard that before. <laughs> the, the 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 details of like what kind of writer are you going to be? Those 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 get hammered out over time. Yeah. Uh, with your you know you you learn that you're a poet or you're you're really mm-hmm. you're really a a screen a screenwriter or you're a you're really good at advertising copy yeah. you know yeah. whatever. But um, it takes a long time to figure out what kind of writer to be. But I think the desire to write is usually kind of an innate infl- affliction, as I call it, or, or maybe it's an obsession or maybe it's just a passion, but it's, it's there. Um, interestingly, though, the first writer that I ever met growing up in Memphis was a narrative historian and one of the best ones. Uh, his name was Shelby Foote, and he was the great Civil War historian that more people know from the Civil War. War documentary that Ken Burns did. And Shelby Foote was just this great character with a great beard and a pipe and, you know, wonderful Delta accent and, you know, this impossible creature. I just, that he was a magnificent and, uh, you know, unreachable. And uh, I never thought I could be that. Um, but I remember kind of studying him. His son and I were friends and we were in a rock band together. Yeah. And, uh, and we would, uh, you know, I, but I, re, you know, here was a guy who just sat down and spent twenty years writing the entire history of the Civil War with, at five hundred words a day, longhand, and uh, you know, uh, gave me some without me really almost through osmosis because I, it's not like I was interviewing him in high school, but just by watching him, I, I think I he gave me some real ideas about what. Narrative history is what it aspires to be, what it can be. Uh, I certainly don't compare myself to him. I'm a very different kind of writer, but uh, I'm sure that set me on a, a path too. This this notion of you know going back into time and using the novelists and other and other kind of tools that we associate with other genres, uh, but applying them to heavily researched nonfiction material. Well, that's what he was doing. And that's what I've spent the rest of my life um, after college essentially doing. And uh, so that's probably set me on on a course. Did you ever experiment with other kinds of writing, fiction, poetry, that kind of thing? Or was it because I I saw this on the internet, so it very well may be wrong, but you were a history major. Is that right? I was a history major. Uh, I certainly, you know, wrote a ton of papers in college and, you know, uh, dabbled with the idea briefly of Maybe being an academic, uh, but that kind of writing is—it's death to good writing. Uh, you know, it—it uh, it will kill you. And uh, you know, we spend four years learning how to write write uh, in this way that is this sort of academic style. Uh, and then you have to kind of, uh, if you want to really be a writer, you then you have to just, like get rid of that style, that voice, that kind of tone that we assume when we write a paper, whether it's a history paper or an English paper, very argumentative and, you know, very uh, kind of disembodied. Um, some people say that you have to undergo a surgical procedure uh, 
which if you want to be a writer, uh, coming out of an academic background, you have to have what's known as a, a corncob ectomy. <laughs> <laughs> you got to remove that thing and, uh, and find your true voice, your true self, your true style. Um, and that's hard work. And it takes a lot of – it's like trying on clothes. you you got to try on – is this me? Is this me? Or is this me? Uh, you know, and I think it takes a while to figure out who you are. Um, so, uh, but I, the way I did that was by doing a lot of journalism. Uh, and I did write, you ask about other things. I, I wrote some, I did a bunch of radio pieces. I did a couple of documentary style short things for, for television. Um, I dabbled with the idea of maybe doing some historical fiction. Mm. Didn't really go anywhere. Um, I certainly played around with a bit of poetry, but I just, you know, that wasn't for me. So um, journalism was really my route into history. And, you know, I think it's a great training for a historian, uh, learning how to question everything, learning how to interview, learning how to look at documents skeptically, um, and also trying to find, you know, where is the controversy? Where is the conflict? Where's the pulse of a story you know uh to make a good piece of history come alive you got to find the pulse you got to find the that part of the story that still has resonance today for for a contemporary audience so i think journalism you know there's a lot of forms of training um shelby foot for example his training to become a historian was he was a novelist yeah. for a long long time before he finally uh, became a, a nonfiction writer but um but that that was my path. And so did journalism help you with the work ethic side of things or the the overcoming writer's block? Because mm -hmm. I've heard that a lot from, from journalists that having an editor over you saying this thing is due mm -hmm. tomorrow, get it done. Yeah, I think that's another great thing about journalism is that it forces you to have a discipline um, to view it as as a – it's a professional ethic, you know, like I, it's a deadline. You got to turn the damn thing in. And I know a lot of writers who really are writers who want to have written <laughs> more than they really want to write. Mm -hmm. They want to have written a book and it's a fine thing to have that ambition. But uh, if you don't have the discipline to, to, to turn out the stuff and to meet Deadlines, and it's usually not. A, it's never a one deadline. Like a book, a big project is really a series of deadlines, and you you have to create your own pressure. You know, you have to create your own internal set of deadlines to to reach goals. You know, this chapter I'm going to turn it in by this date, yep. and you got to hold yourself to it. And, and if you don't, it's amazing how quickly a project can slide mm -hmm. and slip right between your fingers and never get written. And so. Yes, I think having had editors who are holding a gun to your head, um, the notion that the press has to run at a certain hour, and if you don't, if you don't finish in time, yeah, I mean, and I was pretty bad. I mean, I, I was, I, I was, I could procrastinate with the best of them sure. in in my early career. I would, you know, I found that my apartment needed to be cleaned. Just desperately, you know, I, I needed to clean out my refrigerator for the tenth time. Um, I got real anal retentive. You know, I'm not a particularly clean person. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can come up with all kinds of excuses for not writing something because it's it's hard. It's so hard. It's That's hard. The, I can't think of anything harder than writing I any kind of book, much less the type you write. I mean, I just don't. That you talked about, it's in your blood and you're born with it. I think you, it has to be 
for you to be willing to work that hard? I think so. I mean, there's some writers I've met and know who it just seems to come easy to them. And you know, you think never, that's true? I've never met Stephen King, but it seems like he can write a thousand page novel in, in a month. You know, I, I've met uh, and know John Grisham, who seems to just book every three, four, five months. I mean, certainly within every six months, he's got a book. And it seems to, I'm not saying it's easy for him, but it seems to be much easier for some writers than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I do these heavily researched books. They do take a lot of you know, years where you're not actually writing anything. You're just reading and burrowing into the material and yeah. going to the archives and traveling to the sites. And, and um, hell, that's the fun part. You, know, yeah. you aren't writing. Um, you are assembl- assembling all, all the materials and trying to figure out your storylines and structuring the thing. But uh, then there comes a time when you have to you know, start cranking out the copy. And getting that first draft together is always hard. And, you know, it's I, I love editing and, and revising and polishing, but getting that first draft is is uh, not much easier now for me after all these years than it was when I, when I first started at this. I saw an interview with you when I was researching for our first conversation, and you called it the pain cave. <laughs> <laughs> and that sounds about right. Yeah, the, and, and you still experience the pain cave, huh? I do. The pain cave is just basically a... Guilt-ridden, you know, dark place of bad hygiene, <laughs> you know, you're just muttering all kinds of things, shambling around, dropping pieces of paper and talk, you know, wife, you know, your wife makes has no idea what you're talking about. And, of course, because I do history, you're also talking about things that happened maybe 100 years ago. Yeah. You're living in the past. You're living in this, some other shadow world. And you feel you just feel guilty because you owe words to your editor, and you maybe you're kind of broke. And um, because I, you know, I write between books. I mean, the books I can go a whole year where there's no income, you know, zero incomes. My income statements, you know, zero, <laughs> uh, and it's pretty scary. Um, and so you you just can't leave. I mean, I do physically do leave my house i have to get out of my house i go to coffee shops actually to write oh, do you? um i'm still in the cave metaphorically but i'm at least in a public space there's good caffeine there's good wi-fi and i'm being reminded in the background that there are people in the world and you know that one day i'm going to be out of the pain cave and those people are hopefully going to read my book and i'm going to join society again as a more or less normal person. Well, I, I think you can probably have that hope now. But so when you first wrote your first book, and that the first big one was Ghost Soldiers, right? Yeah. And so transitioning from magazine journalism, mostly, I guess, to that, I couldn't imagine the the doubts that must have been creeping in because you're wondering, like, I've never done this before. Is anybody mm-hmm. going to read this damn thing? You know, who the hell knows? Yeah. So, <clears throat> Although uh, Ghost Soldiers was my first big book and it was the most successful book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It still has the highest sales and uh, it just was a hit and uh, I didn't see it coming. It was a very, you know, spectacularly wonderful surprise. How and old were you then? I like was 40? Probably 38 or 40, yeah, was, wow. something like that. And, uh, you know, I was still pretty young and I still viewed myself as a, really as a journalist and uh, suddenly I'm a historian and uh, uh, we that book sold slightly over a million copies it was translated wow. into something like 16 or 17 different foreign languages and uh it was turned into a movie and a, a documentary and um wow it was a great it was a great start and uh it 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 
made me realize, I, hey, I can do this for a living. Nice. I don't have to just uh, – I don't have to struggle so so much at just the idea of can I, can I even do this? Mm-hmm. You know, th- that much is decided. I'm, I'm, I'm a historian now and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep at this. Own it. Yeah. And uh, you know, lean into it. So, And that's what I did. And I guess I've done six of these now, these histories. So it's uh, – or five. I'm, on, I'm working on a sixth. So it's uh, it's been an interesting ride. Oh yeah, well, back to back up just one one step one more time. So when you got out of college, what was your first job? <clears throat> well, um, I went to Yale um, College and I was a history major. Not particularly a great student. I spent most of my time in college uh, working on student publications. I, I guess I was, in a sense, already practicing yeah. what I was going to be when I quote unquote grew up. Um, Um, and, but I, what I ended up doing, I, I went back to Memphis, my hometown, and got a job at, as an intern and then as a kind of a, a junior reporter for my hometown metropolitan magazine, Memphis Magazine, and started writing feature stories. And uh, in retrospect, it was probably the very best education I could have gotten. I mean, within months, I was just in the trenches writing stories, reporting stories, fact-checking stories. Running all over creation, running down facts and details, and um, editing other people's stuff as well, and also working on the whole presentation, you know, of a, of a story, you know, the photos, the illustrations, uh, uh, working uh, with a budget and working against the clock with a real sense of deadlines. I mean, that's hell. That's that's really it. That's the I'm getting the education. Uh, looking back on it, um, that was perfect for what I would ultimately be doing. And when did Outside Magazine come along? Well, I worked in I worked in different magazines. I moved to Washington, D.C. I freelanced for a while for places like the Washington Post mm-hmm. and the New Republic. And, um, and then, then I started writing for Outside Magazine, which is this great publication that was coming into its own then. Uh, great adventure stories, yeah. great stories of the outdoors and, you know, um, travel pieces all over the world. And... Uh, I heard about a job opening there, and I uh, applied for it, got it, moved to Chicago, became an editor, really took off my writing hat for a few years and just uh, was an editor. Uh, And the magazine moved from Chicago to Santa Fe, New Mexico, Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, working with some great writers like, you know, Tim Cahill and David Quammen and a little bit with John Krakauer and... um, Sebastian Younger, and you know, working with a lot of and a lot of others. I'm, I'm not thinking about right now. I can't think of, but um, you know, you're learning. You're learning a lot through again through just just watching these people and seeing how, seeing how they negotiate all these different problems that come up with writing. So I did that for about five years, just uh, in the trenches working uh, sure. as an editor. But uh, I started getting a little frustrated because we were sending these writers out all over the world on these excellent adventures. And I was like, I could have done that. <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to have done uh, gone to Tahiti. Uh, you know, oh, that would have been fun to go to um, Denali or, you know, where, wherever. So I, I, I quit. I started freelancing again, which was terrifying by that point because I had three kids, oh, three young yeah. kids. And, uh, you know, no health plan, uh, you know, just Geronimo. Here we go. So I was already beginning to look for a 
magazine story that could morph into a book, mm-hmm. right? something bigger. Sure. And I did very quickly find one. It was a story about a, uh, a a rescue that happened late in World War II of the last survivors of the Bataan Death March who'd been languishing in a prison camp for three and a half years, and uh, they were going to be executed by the Japanese, and the U.S. Army Rangers were sent in to rescue them and save them, and um, they did exactly that, and it was just a cool story, and I kind of fell into it, and or it fell into my lap, let's say. Spent about three years on it and went to Japan and went to the Philippines and, and interviewed veterans all over the country, and, and it came out, and that book, Ghost Soldiers, really uh, changed my life. Oh, yeah. So when you were working as an editor um, I, I've heard you talk about how you're obsessed with structure in your in your write in your books, and that's one of the things I love about your books is the the structure and how sometimes they're on these parallel tracks, and it just keeps you very engaged. Do you think that time, almost in a teaching role as an editor, really dialed in your your obsession with structure and your ability to? I'm sure it did. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I mean, learning from these people who are really good at it. That's number one. Number two. Uh, you know, an editor has to kind of pull back from a piece and, and look look at that grand design. Like, all right, and how many words are we going to devote to each piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. to tell a good story? And this was the glory – you know, I didn't know it then, but this was kind of the glory days of magazine journalism when magazines were as thick as a phone book. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the ads were – these you know now look at these these same magazines including outside which is just just tiny it's it's so slim um so so in other words the pieces i was editing were long you know really long pieces uh that had a lot of um structure in them too a lot of stuff to think about so you just kind of take what you learn as a magazine editor and apply it on a little bit bigger scale on a little bit bigger canvas and start thinking about structure um in a book uh, and, you know, changing points of view and uh, different timelines and, you know, different narratives that you try to aim at each other so that they will intersect, you know, hundreds of pages down the line. It's a tricky thing. It's 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 uh, it was it's very hard. And I I, I was uh, it was particularly hard back then. I was new to thinking about structure on that kind of scale. Uh, but it's fun. I mean, you know, it, it's like storyboarding. I'm sure that people who, who do films uh, have to think this way. It's just like, wait a minute, we're going to have all these cuts and, yeah. you know, the rapid intercutting between two or three different storylines. It's, uh, it's, it's tricky, but it's a lot of fun. It's like, it's like um, a Rubik's Cube. Sure. I just read a book by uh, John McPhee called Draft Number 4, mm. and it's five or six essays that he wrote about – for his classes that he was teaching at Princeton about structure. And, oh, my God, it's so complicated. I mean, it's like an engineering course. Yeah. You know? Well, and he's the, one of the kings of the of, of both. He was a great teacher and he's a great writer and someone who thought about structure obsessively. Yeah. And I think you can overthink things, too. I, I do think that um, if you find yourself, you know, really stewing over something endlessly, um, probably it's – you 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 you're thinking about a structure that's too complicated. You know, simplicity uh, wins the day usually in a, in a good book. Uh, you know, there's too many storylines or there's too many characters or you're trying to toggle back and forth between two different timelines mm-hmm. or too many flash forwards and flashbacks. And, you know, it just gets to be too busy. Sure. So um, I think a simple structure is usually the best. 
but still variety and you need to have some variety and change change the point of view and and have multiple storylines going i think it's pleasing to the reader and it is. and and it's that's something i we learn mainly from watching movies and tv shows you know it's like that kind of sense of cutting back and forth is a uh, stock and trade of a screenwriter so one of the things I've, that I love about your books, and especially about the newest book, which we're going to talk about, is there is such a varied uh, subject matter. You know, everything from Kit Carson to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. to war stories. Um, but the, the the thing, the central theme is these interesting characters that make up the stories. And so, when did your kind of focus on characters come in. And then, you know, in your magazine writing, I've, I've, you've interviewed Lance Armstrong and Bear Grylls, and you, you, know, you write these really colorful, interesting portraits of people that a lot has been written about, like in your new book, MacArthur. I mean, how much has been written about that? And you're able to kind of shine a new light on it. When did that become a focus of yours, or has it always been? Well, I mean, it's certainly always a focus of magazine journalism. Uh, the, the profile is a classic way a magazine writer kind of learns his or her chops and i certainly wrote a bunch of magazine profiles uh you know where you you know you, it's like taking a portrait of someone but you try to get their biography and you try to kind of capture them in 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 uh in action not just you know the backstory or in a static way but you know follow them tag along whatever so i'm sure that is part of that i mean i, I think all good narrative history is character driven largely mm-hmm. um and um i think it's i think it's just um you know when you when you're reading a a history book and you're realizing that it's deadly dull and you're 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 snoozing you know it's probably because there aren't characters That's and there's not point. there's not people uh that you can identify with uh yeah yeah there's such a thing as intellectual history and ideas are interesting and uh you know i i've re- certainly read some good intellectual history but if it's not attached to an interesting character that you can relate to um like i always say you know i, I would never write a book about say jacksonian democracy yeah. <laughs> but I, I could see writing a book about jackson oh that'd be interesting in which you would learn about jacksonian democracy mm-hmm. it's just that the person and all their conflicts and all their idiosyncrasies is the engine that drives a, a narrative you know mm-hmm. uh, and better yet several people who are in conflict with each other uh different styles of behavior different styles different personalities uh that's a great formula for for um, creating a narrative that people are going to want to actually read um so yeah characters char- you know with narrative history character is by far the most important thing and i think the second thing is setting you know at least in my books uh trying to make landscape trying to make your the setting of the story almost like a character uh that's at least something i strive to do um and that also i think came out of outside magazine some of the writers i was working with were just so good at describing landscape and describing you know mountains describing you know jungles you know wherever the setting was uh the magazine always put a high premium on you know putting you there getting you know so that it's almost experiential the reader it isn't just reading this abstractly. The reader almost feels like they're there. Yeah, you know they've been transported to another place, and it's easier said than done. But it's something I, I certainly try to do with all my books. 
So that's a perfect segue into the new book. And speaking of characters, you had me on like page two when you started talking about General MacArthur. Because my granddad, my maternal grandfather, was a World War II vet, Pacific theater guy. And he used to always just talk about MacArthur. And he'd say his name and then kind of shake his head and roll it and like, that guy was a son of a bitch. <laughs> but it was kind of halfway ad- admiring yeah. him, mm-hmm. halfway thinking this guy was nuts. And so can you just talk a little bit about MacArthur mm-hmm. and what a uh, just what a character this guy was? <laughs> Ego, I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I had written about MacArthur a good bit in my first book, Ghost Soldiers, because yeah. he played a big role in, you know, in the Philippines, obviously. And, you know, as a writer, I mean, I, I love him, uh, you know, because he's a great uh, character with all these flaws and all of these strengths and all of these conf- conflicting personality traits. Uh, vainglorious, arrogant. Um, they used to say he's in love with the, the vertical pronoun, uh, you know, that he's uh, brilliant, but the first to admit it, uh, I shall return. You know, he's yeah. famous for that. And... At this point in his career, Korean War, he's kind of past his expiration date. You know, he's been at this a long, long time, and he, he he's he's uh, I think has surrounded himself with his own kind of coterie of sycophants and uh, yes men, and who will just tell him what he wants to hear. And they said that MacArthur doesn't have a staff; he has a a court. <laughs> And that's pretty much what was happening. He was running the occupation of Japan, and he was he was, de facto, he was sort of the de facto emperor at this time, in addition to running the army of the Far East and running the UN troops, the, the UN forces. I don't think ever in our history have we concentrated so much power in one man, and uh, that was – that was a real problem. We sh- this That's a takeaway right there from this mm-hmm. book is never again should that happen. Um, that said, I mean, you know, he was brilliant and he had, uh, you know, this, a brilliant – proved to be brilliant. I, I tend to think it was maybe just that he was lucky, uh, this idea of uh, landing secretly uh, at Inchon, this amphibious invasion in this place that was uh, very risky because of the tidal fluctuations and a lot of other factors. Most of the commanders, most of the like the Navy guys said, you know, this is you do not want to land there. That's you know, if we don't time this perfectly, um, we're going to be stranded out there on those mud flats, and we're going to be sitting ducks. And we can land any number of other places. Why there? And, but he prevailed, and he succeeded. And at that point, because it was such a spectacular success, his stock had never been higher, and he um, he uh, began to kind of. Um, get greedy and this classic story of almost like greek hubris you know just like uh all right well we won now we've captured seoul let's go to the 38th parallel of course we're going to do all that but why stop there let's keep going let's just go into north korea let's take pyongyang and let's go all the way to the yellow river and so it becomes a kind of classic story of overreach and arrogance uh and a kind of a march of folly you know uh because the Chinese are making all sorts of signals that they may enter the war, and then secretly they do begin to enter the war in huge numbers. And uh, this sets, sets up this sort of tragic collision course uh, of these two armies who are headed towards this reservoir in the mountains of North Korea that is the, the real subject of the book. 
So MacArthur set this whole thing in motion, you know, his arrogance, his uh, refusal, his refusal to to believe intelligence reports that conflicted with what he wanted wanted it to be, and and the fact that he had surrounded himself with other people who um, wouldn't tell him the truth sometimes um, because they they only wanted to tell him what he wanted to hear. Sure. Um, you mentioned the landscape being a character in a lot of your work, but I, I thought in this one the cold was a character, <laughs> and I, you know the the descriptions are just unbelievable. And I've I've experienced real cold before, like in Alaska, and it took everything I had with all this fancy equipment just to you know put on my little hiking boots and walk around in the snow. And yeah. Much less, I mean, I'm not trying to shoot a gun or anything. So, can you just talk about the cold? Yeah. And, and the role that it played in this whole thing, because yeah. that was the first time in U.S. history that some, that we'd fought in conditions like that. Correct? Yeah, it was. It got down to thirty-five below zero. That's and, the top of Denali. You know, in the old, you know, old days uh, when it got this cold, you know, the the armies armies would just lay down their arms and say, "Hey, look, guys, see you in the spring. <laughs> you know, let's go back to our winter, cor- you know, Valley Forge or wherever." And uh, it was kind of a gentleman's agreement almost. Um, well, they didn't do that. They kept moving and uh, marching towards this um, battle, and and then they started fighting in these conditions. And yeah, I mean, it was a constant presence. They could never get away from it. It was, you know, it it, it affected their emotions. You know, it affected their ability to fight. It, you know, the guns wouldn't fire. They froze up, and uh, you know, grenades wouldn't detonate. Uh, the medical fluids that the Army, the excuse me, the Navy corpsman had turned to slush, and you know, uh, the morphine froze, you know, and the, uh, you know, just it, it was just an unbelievable situation. When people uh, were shot and got killed, uh, they would they would they would freeze in the shape in which they had fallen. These kind of ghastly shapes, and all these corpses out there. Uh, the cold, uh, I mean, it was. It also killed people. You know, it was uh, many people froze to death and died of exposure. Frostbite rates are about eighty-five percent of the Marines mm-hmm. suffered some form of frostbite. People lost fingers and toes, and you know, parts of their face. And you know, they just weren't equipped for that kind of cold. No, no army is really going to be equipped for that kind of cold. Um, so. So that's yeah. It was a constant thing, and these guys that I interviewed said that you know they, when they dream about it, what they mostly dream about is the cold really? and you know this all pervading thing. They they say they some they still can't get it out of their bones. You know, it's just like you know never again. And will they? And most of them, by the way, you know, ended up retiring in places like Florida, and <laughs> smart <laughs> Texas, and Southern California. So um, because they can't deal with cold. You know, it just emotionally, physically, or you know, you know, psychologically. It yeah, it's uh, that, that's you know, in, in the little bit of mountain climbing I've done, you know, that's the thing that remind that has been the hardest is dealing with the cold. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when it's the scariest, and uh, it's just it, you can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. And that's again for fun. Yeah, that's not you know, my life wasn't on the line really. Yeah. And as bad as it, as as bad as it was for the Marines. It was even worse for the Chinese. Uh, Mao sent his troops into battle with just rudimentary equipment. Uh, they didn't have gloves. No they, had, they had tennis shoes. Mm. Just like little crepes sold, you know, espadrille tennis shoes. No socks. 
some of them. And uh, they had these kind of quilted cotton uniforms that just just wasn't going to cut it. And they had no food and they, you know, no hot food. Um, uh, they were supposed to kind of forage off the land and a lot of them didn't even have weapons. They were supposed to march in waves and the first wave would have, you know, have their weapons and then they would get mowed down presumably and, and the second wave was supposed to pick up the weapons of the first wave and keep on going like that. So kind of like cannon fodder, you know, mm-hmm. and um, but there were just so many of them that the, it was such a numerical advantage that um, even MacArthur, the, the vainglorious MacArthur quickly realized we couldn't fight that and we had to turn around. We had to get out of there. You know, you, you could use the word retreat. Mm-hmm. The Marines don't like to use the word retreat. Uh, they, they have other euphemisms for it like uh, retrograde maneuver, advance to the rear. General uh, Oliver Smith, the the commander of the 1st Marine Division, said, we're just attacking in another direction. But uh, they had to fight their way out of this trap, which they did. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that, you know, like you said, when you hear the word retreat, it seems like, all right, somebody lost. But these guys, it can be seen as a victory in a lot of ways because they fought their way in. They had to fight their way out. They put up with some of the hardest conditions ever. Um, It was and they and they inflicted astonishing, just incredible violence on the Chinese. The the casualties were, you know, I think the Chinese suffered as many as thirty thousand dead uh, during this seventeen day battle. Um, so, yeah, you can say it was a retreat, but and you could say it was a victory for the Chinese, but it was a pyrrhic victory. Sure. You know, it was uh, it was only because. Mao had the political will to keep fighting and, uh, you know, we wouldn't have tolerated those kinds of casualties. Mm-hmm. We just wouldn't have. Um, that was, that's a bloodbath. Yeah. Well, and we won't talk about it now, but people need to buy the book to read about Mao and what a weird dude he is. Mm-hmm. I mean. <laughs> yeah, he he was a weird guy. We didn't quite know what a monster he was going to prove to be when he assumed total, total power uh, during the Cultural Revolution and so forth. But uh, he was – Interesting and odd, and um, he had horrible teeth, uh, <laughs> and he had horrible breath, and uh, no internal clock. Uh, yeah, he, he, but and he was also a great strategist and someone interested in military strategy, and and um, followed the events from from the front, you know, in Beijing, in, from his you know palace in Beijing. So yeah, what's great, and I do try to do this in the book, is like leave the battlefield. And talk a little bit about what Truman is doing, what Mao is doing, what MacArthur is doing, uh, just to kind of give you more perspective on kind of the geopolitics uh, that got these armies uh, in this horrible place. So in this book, you obviously – you got to talk with a lot of Korean War veterans in your – in Go Soldiers. You you obviously got to know some of the World War II veterans and they're – you know. I imagine there aren't that many of them left at this point. Um, what lessons have you learned from those guys, from getting to know those guys hanging around them? Because, you know, you hear that term greatest generation thrown around, but the older I get and the more I learn about that generation, I, I kind of think that's true. I mean, they are a really a group of complete badasses in many, many, many different ways. So yeah. what what have you taken away from your relationships with those those guys? Well, I mean, you know, they they were badasses and they were tough and they had been through the Great Depression and they uh, they knew how to fix things. You know, they had a sense of self reliance. You know, you know, there's you don't always bring in an expert. You just do it. You just 
fix the thing and you make it work. You you improvise. Um, you uh, you you stay flexible. You, you you know you stay resilient, and you just take whatever comes. And I think those were all, certainly all traits of these guys. Um, a lot of the guys I interviewed for this book. Uh, had fought in World War II as well, so they are sort of the greatest generation with a with a bonus chapter of of hardship. I mean, oh my God, you know, to, some of these guys fought like in Iwo Jima, Okinawa, you know, and Chosen Reservoir. Uh, these guys are, you know, that's a trifecta of of toughness, and um, you know, they they they're a little they tend to be a little grumbly and um, grump, grumpy, and uh, you know, they've seen a lot of suffering and known the true depths of it. Um, they, uh, but they're tough, you know, they're, they're, they're just tough, but you know, another thing that they have, the ones that got through these, the worst of these experiences, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the question of survival. Like why do some people survive a horrible ordeal, like a prison war camp in the Philippines or a battle like the chosen reservoir? And why do other people not survive? What combination of traits did they summon that got them through it? And the one thing that's maybe more important than any other single thing that I I feel is a sense of humor. Mm. You know, finding humor in a situation, no matter how dark, uh, maybe they're not laughing about it at the time, but you know, they go through life, you know, dealing with it the rest of their lives and PTSD and just you know, you know. But finding humor as they think back on what what they went through mm-hmm. uh, in the prison camps of the Philippines. They, these guys were always, you know, they had a kind of a gallows humor and they were pulling pranks on each other and pulling prank pranks on the Japanese guards. And uh, that humor uh, and that sense of, you know, just looking for some ray of hope in a seemingly hopeless situation uh, is a, is a common trait among survivors. Very important. And uh, these guys have a real wry and, you know, uh, some some of them have a quite raucous sense of humor, and, and and I've always appreciated that. That's how my grandfather was. I mean, he was a you know World War II guy, but some of the stories he would tell, well, you know, on most levels were pretty horrifying stories, but he could tell it in a way that mm-hmm. <laughs> made it kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. That's a I really do think greatest generation is yeah. a great term. There's a guy in the book named uh, John Yancey, a lieutenant from Arkansas, oh, yeah. who um, was in the thick of the fighting, and he got shot in the face like three or four times in a single night. Somehow survived all that, but the last bullet dislodged his eyeball from its socket, and it sort of ended up on his cheek, and uh, he just he just mashed it back into his eye socket and kept on fighting <laughs> until the dawn. And someone said, hey, Dude, you're coming with me, and believe it or not, he he, he got his eyesight restored and uh, lived a long life and um, went back to Arkansas. And so, but when when I'm when I'm having a bad day, you know, and when, when I'm being a whiner about something, uh, I think of people like John Yancey and these guys who just man, they're just they were just so tough and they were just so like forge ahead and. What are you going to do? Your eyeball just came out. It's it's it sounds almost it's so grotesque sounding and so uh, and he but he found a way to laugh about that the rest of his life and uh, he had like numerous facial reconstruction surgeries and uh, but he got out of that and you know he got he was married had kids had a family uh, lived in Little Rock and and uh, was telling all sorts of uh, dark jokes about that the rest of his life um, and I, I'm sure that sustained him. Yeah. 
Well, people need to buy the book because it's, as usual, it's awesome. But it's just a, it's a whole chapter of American history that I didn't know anything about, and I feel almost guilty that I didn't. Um, but it makes it accessible, even you know, even if you're not a military history buff, if you enjoy interesting people, it's must read. So I love it. So it's awesome. Um, so real quick, I know you are on a tight schedule, and again, thank you for doing this. Mm. I've got a few quick questions that I ask everybody that yeah. comes on the podcast, and so I'd love to run through them with you. Um, so the, the the main topic of this podcast is the American West. Do you have any favorite books that you've read just about the American West? Cadillac Desert. Yeah. Um, uh, Stegner's book, um, Beyond the Hundredth mm-hmm. Meridian. Um, in fact, several of Stegner's novels, too. I just think he's one of the great writers of all time, not just Western writers. Um, but those are two that jump to mind. Yeah, those are great. And those come up a lot. They're, they're uh, every, you know, they, and they've been very impactful in my thinking about things. What's your favorite book of all time, if you had to pick one? What if you named off all of your own books? I, yeah, anything by Hampton Sides. <laughs> no, I, 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 I think it's All the King's Men, Robert Penn Warren. Okay, great, great. Um, favorite documentaries? Well, I don't know that you're ever going to get any better than Ken Burns' Civil War. It's good. I watched that in high school. Mm-hmm. That's so good. And I didn't fully appreciate it in high school. I've watched it since. The Roosevelt one's pretty good. Yeah. But I'm obsessed with TR. Um, so what do you do for fun when you're not writing, traveling, selling books? I get together with a bunch of guys in a shack in a in Arroyo and near Santa Fe, and uh, we listen to music really, really loud. And we're not allowed to talk, and we just share music and uh, bourbon. Uh, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, nice. It's called the shack. <laughs> cool. Can I come? <laughs> you have to have a special invitation. <laughs> okay. There there are a lot of rules and protocols we'd have to discuss, but it's possible. Okay, perfect. Um, so you've traveled all over the world. What is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And powerful could be scary, could be funny, memorable, could be an experience you had with your kids. I think it's the Grand Canyon. I uh, I, I rafted through, you know, the Grand rafted the Colorado through the Grand Canyon. I also crossed it rim to rim one time, and you know, a lot of people just go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and stare down at it and then think that's oh I've seen it I've done it check it off the list and you know you have to wrestle with it you've got to put sweat equity into that canyon and really see it from the bottom up and uh, every time I go there I just think this is the greatest place on earth your prologue at the beginning of Pete McBride's new book sums it all up I I love it Mm -hmm. Um, that's a great book yeah yeah I mean it's just a magical place and you could spend your entire life uh, and I mean you know to the point of having what feel like spiritual kinds of emotional uh, connections to this place and th- to the eons of time that you're that you're looking at and um it's just such a profound place i don't think there's any any place that comes close for me and maybe this is the same answer as what i just asked but where is your favorite location in the west grand canyon i you know, I mean, I have this little place near Santa Fe that I love that is uh, it's just a per- particular part of the Aspen Grove up there um, that is just just kind of magical, you know, and that's where I always say I want my ashes scattered. And, uh, you know, everyone has their little private places yeah. uh, that maybe aren't so foreboding. I mean, the Grand Canyon, I wouldn't want to just hang out there all the time. It, it, it takes a lot. It's, it takes a lot of work, you know. Yeah, it does. You got to think about it and you got to. 
you know, it's not a, it's not a, a comfort place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a place to get big ideas and to work hard and to uh, you got to put in a lot of effort to really understand it. And this is a hard one, but what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Well, I remember that it was one of the things Shelby Foote told me because I later did a long interview with him as when I was a professional writer. And uh, he told me that he said, never talk about your work mm-hmm. while you're writing it. Uh, it's like a lot of people, they go to cocktail parties and they go to dinner parties and they just tell everyone what they're working on and how they're going to do this and they're going to do that and how it's going to be great. And, you know, he said, great writing is written under enormous pressure, like a pressure cooker, mm-hmm. those old pressure cookers that like my grandmother used oh, to yeah. cook beans in. And and if you let off the pressure a little bit by a little bit by a little bit, uh, that thing's never going to get cooked. That thing's never going to get written. And uh, so just – don't talk about your work unless you're you know, legitimately having a problem that you can maybe talk to another writer about, a structural problem or something like that. But, you know, just just uh, casually chatting about your work is a formula for not writing it. And uh, that proved to be a great piece of advice for me. So you're not much on social media, which I really admire. But how can people connect with you? Your website's got all your events. You got a few more book signings. Any other ways? Facebook. I have a my my new book has a Facebook page uh, on Desperate Ground, and my website is HamptonSides.com. But I do not tweet, and I do not plan to tweet. Good for and, you. And uh, I think there should be a constitutional amendment like. Uh, uh, that prevents a sitting president from practicing statecraft by 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 Twitter feed. I, I, I think it's 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 actually extremely dangerous. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Korea. Yeah. <laughs> Rocket Man. Anyway, yeah. I. I uh, but those are ways to, to and you know check out my website for sure. Yep. And I'll have links to the book so everybody buy a copy immediately. And thank you for doing this in this busy time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.